I welcome you today. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors at Heart of Life, and we are truly grateful that we could spend some time together today. I hope that you've had a great week. The weather is getting a little bit warmer. Um, the NFL draft, at least, hopefully you sports fans, a little something to enjoy. People actually have asked me, so I want to address it. Jeff, you're an LSU Tiger fan, so are you going to talk about the LSU Tiger quarterback, Joe Burrow, who was the first pick of the NFL draft? And my answer is no, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not. They said, well, how about the LSU running back? I mean, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, he was the first right round pick of the Kansas City Chiefs. Are you going to talk about that? And my answer is no. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about any of the five first-round LSU Tiger draft picks, nor the 14 total LSU Tiger draft picks. I just want to make it clear that I'm not going to talk about how well my LSU Tigers did in the NFL draft. <laughs> like how I did that? Seriously, I'm messing with you. We got a lot more important things to talk about today. It's interesting to me when we go through struggles, we have a way of thinking it's so unique to the history of the world. Um, we think nobody could ever understand, but the more you read the Bible, the more you will be amazed at how much the Bible speaks to the chaotic seasons of our life and how into each of those, God speaks hope. This week, as we read the story of God, there was a part of the scripture that I want to highlight a little bit for you and just set it up as to where we're going to go today. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it starts like this, in the year that King Uzziah died. Let's just stop right there. In the year that King Uzziah died. We, we just read through a phrase like that, but come on, that was a bad day for some people. I mean, Mrs. Uzziah right? Uzziah Jr., maybe a few friends along the way. It's a bad day. But honestly, it's bigger than that because it says that he was the king. And so a whole country is affected. In fact, what we know from history is that he was a king for 52 years. He didn't end well. Like many of the kings, it was pride. Eventually, he got leprosy. You want to talk about some serious social distancing. But for much of Uzziah's reign, it was good. And for 52 years, the people enjoyed that. There was mostly peace. There was mostly prosperity. There was the appearance of, of religious interest in the land. It represented some God connection. It was like God saying, it's going to be okay. But now, the king is gone. And there is a level of uncertainty that many of them had never experienced in their lifetime. The king is gone and an enemy is on the horizon and it is into that circumstance that God gives Isaiah this vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, 
Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So here's the picture. In a day of uncertainty, Isaiah, this is what I want you to see, and this is what I want you to tell the people. The king is dead, but take a look. The king of all kings is still on his throne. The king of all the kings, he is still sovereign. He is still in control, and he has angelic beings that are armed and ready for whatever he desires for them to do. And this king's character, he's holy. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. What is that about? Maybe it's the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, but I also think it might just be, it's repeated because you you can't get to to how big this is. is. It is immeasurable. He's without error or flaw. He is utterly and infinitely unlike us. He's always good. So this, Isaiah, is what you tell the people. The greatness of your God is always completely intact. He is infinite, unchanging. The only thing that anchors your soul in a time of uncertainty is the sovereignty and the character of your God. He's got it, which means he's got you, and he is good. By the way, you turn to the New Testament, and in John chapter 12, the Bible makes it clear that who Isaiah saw that day was Jesus. It says it was the Son that he saw. Now, that's before skin, before Bethlehem, but he sees the glory of who Jesus is. So this is what I tell you. When you truly begin to see who Jesus is, you clearly know You don't want to settle for some superficial relationship with him. You want to know him. The vision that Isaiah had a long time ago was meant for long far beyond that day. It still means something very important for you and I today. I'm glad you're here. Let's worship this king. God, thanks for what you're going to show us today. I thank you for every household, every person who is, who is gathered today. I continue to pray safety on them. But God, in these moments together, will you give us hearts that bring praise to you? God, thank you in the midst of our struggle. We are reminded, you, the king, are still on the throne. And everything you do, it is good. It's in the name of Jesus we thank you. I grow so lonesome how I stand Where even angels fear to tread Invited by redeeming love Before the throne of God above He pulls me close with nail-scarred hands into his everlasting arms 
There is an old church joke where 
The pastor gets up and he says, I want you to turn in your Bible to the book of Hezekiah. And for a moment, people search. The point of the joke is there is no book of the Bible called Hezekiah. It sounds like it should be, and that's why it works. But there, there is no book, and so you, you watch people search for a few minutes, and the old joke is you can always tell who never actually reads their Bible. But what I have come to learn is that even for the smart ones who know that Hezekiah is not a book of the Bible, the truth is many of them know very little about Hezekiah who is actually in the Bible, so... I'm not sure they're actually reading their Bible either. Today, I want to tell you a little bit about this guy named Hezekiah. What we know is that he became the king of Judah at age 25. That's pretty wild. Don't ever tell me that God can't use 20-somethings, right, to do uh, amazing things for him. 25 years old, and he's the king of a nation. But what's even more amazing is that he actually reigned as that king for 29 years. One more little fact about Hezekiah, he's actually the great-grandson of King Uzziah, the one that we read about a few minutes ago, the the one who died that year when when God gave the the vision to Isaiah. He's the great-grandson of of Uzziah. Now, what we know is with most of the kings, more of them were bad. They didn't listen to God than did listen to God. So the question is with Hezekiah, was he good or bad? So let me read this to you. Hezekiah chapter 18. I'm just kidding. Second Kings chapter 18. Here's what it says about Hezekiah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father David had done. Now, it doesn't mean that David was his actual, it means that he's in the line of the kings of David. He's in David's line. He removed the high places. We'll talk about this. Smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. Interesting. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. Well, question answered. Hezekiah was a good king. In fact, the the statement is made that, that there was no one like him before or after. And one of the reasons that's said of him is that list of accomplishments. For example, he removed, it says, the high places. There have been a few good kings that had come along. But in all the good things that those kings would do, they did not have the guts to touch the high places. You say, what what in the world are the high places? Well, the high places are literally elevated locations where people would worship. You say, well, what's wrong with that? 
Well, what's wrong with it is God had said the temple is where you are to come to worship. God said in that day, the temple is where you are to bring the sacrifices. Now remember, we're talking about an Old Testament day. This is before God's spirit could actually reign in the hearts of of us who believe in him. He's saying, you come to the temple, this is where my presence is recognized. This is where you bring your sacrifices. But what the people began to do is they began to set up some alternative sites that were convenient for worship. Most of them being elevated, a lot of the scholars that I read, they were, they were probably beautiful places. Some of them eventually would almost become resort-like areas. Think of it this way. It's sort of like what we want to do is spend our time at the lake. And so if we're going to the lake, we just need to build a little high place at the lake to where we can check our worship box, make our sacrifice, and everything will be good. Well, God had said, don't do that. And over the years, what began to happen is it wasn't just the the worship of God that was happening at the high places, but they were beginning to worship false gods. Hezekiah said, we're getting rid of them. Nobody had ever done that. But not only did he remove the high places, but it says he smashes the sacred stones. They would be stones that were stacked on top of each other in order to honor some of the false gods. Some of these stones were 25 tons in weight. Some of them were as high as 20 feet into the air. And now God had told his people at times they would stack stones to remember, but but these sacred stones, they are to the false gods of Canaan. And he says, we're going to crush them. We're going to crush them. It talks about how he cut down the Asherah poles. Last week, we were introduced to this name. She, the goddess of fertility, they believe, that that was connected to Baal. And so often it was a grove of trees or it was these poles that that were associated with her. Sometimes they were a very graphic shape. I'm just going to leave it there today. You got to think that they're they're worshiping. They they want the the, the ground to be fertile. And so he, he said enough of that and he just cuts down the Asherah poles. And then perhaps the most interesting for Bible students is he destroys the bronze snake. And you're like, I didn't even know that was still around. Yeah, it's still around. And it's 800 years since that had been constructed. How did it get constructed? Well, God was the author of that. God was the one who said, Moses, here's what I want you to to form. Remember, it was the sin of the people and and the, the venomous snakes were biting them. And God said, I want you to lift that into the air. And when they look at the serpent, right, that they are going to live. And we we looked at that several weeks ago, where that was an image of of eventually how Jesus would be the one lifted up for our sin. But now. God's people are burning incense to this thing. Question, how could someone take what God established to point us to him and turn it into something that is worshiped in place of him? How could that happen? Honestly, I am convinced that in this whole crazy season that we're going through right now, that God is using that season to perhaps show us a little bit of this very thing, maybe in our own lives. 
You know, we read from the scripture that the early church began to meet together on the first day of the week in celebration of the fact that Jesus rose, right, on the first day of the week. And so they would gather. But can I tell you that there are times as a pastor when, when I'm watching and, and it almost feels like at times the gathering of the church can at times appear more valued than the actual God that we have supposedly gathered to worship. You say, that's weird. Why would you say that? The reason I would say it is because honestly, I, I have experienced it over time. What, what I know is if you mess with people's weekend worship, you mess with Sunday worship, people fight. Just change the time, change the order, change the style, right? And all of a sudden, people get incredibly passionate about what you are doing to, to this gathering. Now, at the same time, what I have observed is they will stand in that very gathering and not sing. They will sit in that very gathering and hear God's word, but not change. They will leave that gathering and, and in a week's time not tell one single person about the God who supposedly they had gathered to worship. I'm just saying there have been moments that it appears we might place more worth on the actual worship gathering than we do the God that we have supposedly gathered to worship. There's a part of me that at times fears in this whole COVID-19 experience that the church as a whole might be more concerned about being back in our buildings at our designated time than it appears we are about loving our God by loving our neighbor, by being willing to temporarily, right, not meet in really large groups, but we can worship in our homes with our families. And I'm saying, why is that the case? Maybe in some instances, it's because people have replaced the actual worship of God with something that God gave us to actually worship him, a worship gathering. I don't want you to misunderstand me, and I'm begging you, please don't misquote me. I cannot wait for us to get back together. I promise you, I cannot wait. God tells us that this gathering together, it matters. We, we need it. The early church models it for us daily and weekly. I'm ready for the church to be able to gather again. But I can't help but believe this can't gather time has been good for us to remember. Our worship is to God, not to the program of the church. I can't believe that those people in Hezekiah's day could take something that God gave them for life and turn it into something that stole worship from God. We would never do that. I want to talk to you for just a minute because hopefully, prayerfully, it looks like we're starting to turn the corner on this thing. 
Uh, the conversation is about people going back to work, which would be great. Uh, and so a part of that conversation is the chance that we are actually, I, I, we could be together again. But I just want you to know that as we are praying through this, I'm not convinced that the absolute best thing for us to do is to just rush back together, even though the government wouldn't be telling us not to. I don't know that it's smart to put a bunch of kids in a room together when they're still not going to school for the reason that we don't know if it's safe yet for them to all be together. I don't think it's smart for us to put our mature adults at risk. I'm talking about those who are more endangered by this virus. I just don't know if that's the move that looks like love the most. See, this thing is different because most everything we've ever faced has been about, hey, there's a threat out there. And I've got to make the decision of whether or not that I'm going to subject myself to this threat. What changed in this circumstance is that not always is the threat out there. The part I have to consider is sometimes I'm the threat. And so I I want to say, I I wasn't going to go here today, but I'm actually going to do this. I, I want to say to our students for a few minutes, our high school students, I want to thank those of you who have been willing to do what needed to be done in this season in order to really love and protect the people around you. And here's why I'm saying it to high school students, because I think you are at an age where honestly the numbers show, right, the threat to you is not as great. It's not. The threat is not as great. There's always a threat, but we get the numbers. And so it would be really easy for you to say, you know what, this is not a threat to me. And so I can still go and do everything that I want to do and hang out with everybody that I want to hang out with, right? Because I'm not threatened by it. But the truth is many of you demonstrated, and I've heard the stories of many of you who demonstrated you had enough wisdom and maturity to recognize it's not just you being threatened, it's that you actually become a part of the threat. You may not ever know that you have the symptoms, but many of you who could have gone and done whatever you wanted to do have chosen to actually do what was asked. And I'm saying today there's probably not going to be a parade on this side of heaven to thank you. And so today, I just want to encourage you a little bit. That's what loving people looks like. It's about an unselfishness that says I could, but I'm choosing not to because I love these people more than I'm going to love my own life. Well, I'm saying that's the heart we want to demonstrate as a church as we come back together. So what if, what if we can see it as? Remember how we started in big groups and then it moved smaller, smaller, smaller. Well, what if we start to go the other direction when the, when, when the time comes that we start from small and we get a little bigger, 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 bigger? What, what if instead of you having to, to be at home by yourself with your family, which hopefully is what you're doing today, maybe it could start to be a couple of families who come together and you can, you can watch together and celebrate and worship together. Maybe then it can become, you know, life team type level of groups, several, several families who come 
comes together. And it, it may be that we, we need to organize that according to some geographical locations. And, and, and so what if we started taking steps back that way rather than just putting everybody back in the room where the risk is greater? We've fought this long. We want to finish this thing the best that we can. And if we do it this way, if we put this structure in place where groups of people can come together, if, which we hope it doesn't, but if this thing resurfaces in the, in the fall, or if anything else ever resurfaces, we will have been prepared as the church to know how to still meet in smaller groups and we can still be the church and not spend all of our time just trying to figure out how to communicate. God gave us a jump on this thing when he gave us the video plans about a year ahead of time. Well, what if we also use this moment to structure in such a way that we're just prepared for whatever comes, that we can still be the church? So over these next couple of weeks, we're going to attempt to do a lot of communicating, a lot of structuring in order for us to take those steps in a healthy way. And I appreciate the hearts of so many of you who have expressed just what we're talking about here. Before we leave this bronze serpent thing, I I, want to just, can't you imagine the criticism that Hezekiah received when he starts knocking down the high places? Can't you imagine the criticism that he receives when he destroys that bronze serpent, which, by the way, that funny name, Right, Nehushtan, that, that funny name, it simply means a bronze thing. That's what it means. I, I, think, it was, I think it was their way of, of clarifying, you know what, this bronze, it's just, a, it's just a bronze thing, right? When it comes to idols, God is not intimidated by them. He's not intimidated by the stone or the bronze or anything else. There's, there's a bigger picture at play here, and that's what we're going to see. My, my question is, man, how did this happen this long? This thing's been around for 800 years and they're offering incense to it like some judge or some king along the way surely would have said this is wrong. Did they just not recognize it as an idol or did they just not call it an idol so that they could do what they wanted to do? I think sometimes that's what we do with sin, right? We don't, we don't call it adultery. We, we call it a it's a meaningful relationship, right? We don't, we don't call it covetousness where we, we have to have what somebody else has, but we, we call it, right, it's a good bargain or it's, or it's prudent. Or we change the language. We, we would never say that we live a life of sensual pleasure, right? We, we, would, we would talk about living with passion. One day in an answer to a critic, Abraham Lincoln Ask the question, how many legs does a cow have? And the answer was four. He asked the second question. He said, well, if you call her tail a leg, how many legs does she have? And they said five. He said, no, four. Because just because you call a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And that's a little bit of what Hezekiah is doing in his day. 
It's a little bit of what happens in our day where we have a way of changing the language in order for us to continue to do what we want to do that God says don't do. Sometimes idols are obvious. They appear to be evil, obvious to Baal back in that day when they would sacrifice their children. Seriously? And we go, that, that's horrible. But when it comes to offering incense to a, to a bronze serpent, I think you would have found people in that day going, that's not that big a deal. There's, there's bigger sins. There's worse to worry about. But when we say that, we don't really understand what's really happening between us and God. Through another prophet, his name was Ezekiel, God gives us a clearer picture of what's happening here I want you to look at these words in Ezekiel chapter 14, uh, a couple of verses. Here's what he says in verse 4. Therefore, speak to them, Ezekiel, God says, and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of these Israelites, I love this language, set up idols in their hearts. This isn't about constructing an idol in a temple. This is about building idols, he says, in your heart. And you put a wicked stumbling block before their faces, and then they go to a prophet, right? They they still want something. They still want answers. God says, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. He's like, I'm going to meet this head on. I will do this to recapture the heart of the people of Israel who have all, interesting word we're coming back to in a minute, deserted me. They've deserted me for their idols. He says, you got to get this. This is about your heart. This is about your heart. This is about what are you placing on the throne of your heart? Your heart that's built for God, but you are setting up idols. And when you do, we got to understand what that really means for us spiritually. So I'm going to give you just some visuals here uh, to kind of bring this thing around. An idol on the throne of your heart, the Bible teaches us, is spiritual adultery. You're like, couldn't you pick a better word? I didn't pick the word. God picks the word in Scripture. And over and over again, that's the imagery he gives when we worship other idols. The word deserted me that we read just a second ago, that's, that's a Hebrew word that doesn't just mean you walked out on me. It's a Hebrew word with, with more context to it. It was a word that was used to where a spouse would leave a spouse, but not just leave. They would go to someone else. That's the word. You you didn't just desert me in that you walked out on me. It was that you walked out on me and you went to be with someone else. And so we, we get this imagery of how God sees this picture, right? We are the bride of Christ. We read in the New Testament, right? And we are dressed in white, right? Because, because we are a people who are forgiven. We are a people who are clean. And, and so, and God goes, oh, you don't understand what you're doing here. You don't understand the choice that you're making when you set up these idols 
in your heart. God says, you approach me because you want something from me, but when you approach me, I can smell the stench of another on you. What do you mean, God? I mean, I know. You've been rolling around in the dirt with somebody else. When you pray to me, it's not because you love me. It's just because you want something else from me. But all the while, you are setting up these idols and giving your heart to someone else. We got to see it. We got to see this. Speaking of seeing it, what the Bible also says that, that an idol on the throne of your heart is not only spiritual adultery, but it is spiritual blindness. It is spiritual blindness. I don't know if you realize it or not, but, but when you begin to set an idol in your heart, there's a way that you begin to cater to that idol that, that pulls you away from God, right? You start to plan for that idol. You start to make room, make time. You, you, you get isolated in order for you to capitalize on that idol. Sometimes you are deceived in, in what you see because you, you start to sin presumptuously, right? This is the language of our heart sometimes. I know it's sin, but God will forgive me. That's what grace is for. And suddenly we realize there is a spiritual blindness. We start to see our sin as a cheap thrill that does not have an eternal punishment attached to it. But, but it's this imagery. When you start to sin presumptuously, you are on thin ice and we are all heavy on thin ice because the wages of sin is death. <laughs> So I begin to see everything through a tent. It's not the true color. And so I watch people marry people out of deception. Because I'm, I'm calling it love. I, I'm calling it love. Right? That's what the hearts are for. I'm calling it love. That's the way I see it. But the deceptive piece of it is sometimes it's lust. Or sometimes it's, it's the need of relationship that if I don't have this person or somebody that I can't be right complete. And so all of a sudden we have placed relationship on the throne of our heart. Sometimes people move here and there. The grass is, is greener over there, but what it really means is that we have placed a, a greed on, on our heart, always needing to have more, but we can't really see because we are deceived by our sin, right? You see everything through the color of how you feel. Other people can see it. They know what your idols are, because they can trace the smoke back to the altar. 
Good news is when Jesus is on the throne of your heart, he removes the veil and you can see, but when the idols are present, it's taken me a few seconds here, but I'm, I'm kind of adjusting to it, right? I'm kind of adjusting to the tent on these lenses, and so I can, I can, I'm kind of getting used to. That's the deceptive piece. But the Bible says not only is it spiritual adultery, not only is it spiritual blindness, but it's also spiritual deafness. It's spiritual deafness. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you can't hear, that if you can't hear God, you must have sin. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying if you can't hear God, you might have sin. And if you've been following God for a long time, right, one of the things that that most breaks my heart is when I watch people who've been in church for a long, long time, and, and when they finally get honest with me and they will talk about not being able to hear God. Well, Jesus said, my, my sheep, they know my voice. They recognize the voice of what's a stranger, but they, they know my voice. And so sometimes I'm, I'm afraid we're, we're walking around saying, God spoke to me. God spoke to me. But the truth of the matter is we have set up some idols in our heart so that in reality, and this will be weird because I can't hear as well anymore. God, I want to know what you have for me in the future. But my idols have created some God-canceling headphones. And in the end, it's going to mean that I'm not actually hearing from God. I'm actually hearing from whatever idol I have built in my heart. I'm hearing, and it's going to send me to a place that I never intended. Guys, there is a war that's going on for your life. There is a war externally and internally, but so many people can't see it and they, they can't hear from him because you're with another. There's one more word that I want you to get. An idol on the throne of your heart is spiritual adultery, it's spiritual blindness, it's spiritual deafness, and it is spiritual weight. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these before, or if you've ever had one, I'm sure you've seen one, but it's called a weighted blanket. And the first time I ever picked one of these up, I was absolutely shocked. I mean, these things weigh 15, 20 pounds. I mean, you you expect to pick up some cloth and and you're picking up 20 pounds. But it's the imagery I I, I want you to see today, right? This this is not what you want to walk around with. This This is not what you want to take to the game. But it's the imagery I have for a lot of people who are walking around with a weight of guilt and a weight of shame and a weight of regret. Man, can you imagine running a race (laughs) with this? 
How about running the race of faith with this? So the question is, well, what do we do? Well, what we do is answered if we return to where we started. And if we return to Isaiah chapter 6, I want you to to see a little bit of this. I'm going to take these to where I can at least hear. Here's what he says in verse 5. Isaiah says, woe to me, I cried. Now remember, he saw God. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Remember, that was the the beings with with the wings. They flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In the presence of God, in the presence of God, Isaiah seeing clearly who God is suddenly knows the truth about himself and he just goes to pieces. He just goes to pieces. It's, it's what happens to Ezekiel when Ezekiel is given a glimpse of God. It's what happens to John in the book of Revelation. It says he becomes like a dead man. I, I, Isaiah is just traumatized by who God is. Well, what's the business about unclean lips? Well, the Bible says that from the heart, the mouth speaks. The truth is you can often tell what someone worships. You can tell the sin of their heart most easily by the words that they speak. And Isaiah knows now that he's seen the holiness of God, he doesn't get to compare himself to anybody else. He has seen God's holiness, but God sees his sinfulness. And what you're hearing here is the heart of repentance. And it says the angel, right, uses the tongs to take the burning coal and, and, and puts it on his lips. What's that about? It's the, it's the painful picture of genuine repentance. It's the painful picture of sin having a cost. But what is represented here is a, is a picture of forgiveness. It's a picture of cleansing. It's a picture of what the Bible calls atonement, how Jesus covers our sin in what he did at the cross so who is God really looking for in these uncertain times (laughs) it's not the smartest it's not the most talented it's not the most resourced it's not the most known It's those who have a vision. Those who see how great Jesus is. And when we see who he is, we are broken over our own sinfulness. And in that process, he forgives. And the weight is removed and the sin is wiped away and when from that point forward I don't allow any sin to affect 
my ability to hear him. I don't let it affect my ability to see him. I will fight with everything that I've got to see and hear and love the God who has given me life. Verse eight, Isaiah says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he said, here am I, send me. See, here's the beautiful picture. When, when Jesus is on the throne of your life, this isn't just about forgiveness, which by itself is quite remarkable, which by itself is almost too much to imagine. But not only is it about forgiveness, but it becomes about a mission. It becomes about a purpose. As long as you set up idols in your heart, you will never realize the full purpose to which God created you to be in him. He says, who, who shall I send? And, and, and we read this where, where Isaiah says, send me. And I, I think I've always, I've tended to have this picture of, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. I'm not so sure. Honestly, the older that I get, I'm not so sure that Isaiah's going, pick me, pick me, pick me. When I read what I just read, it's more like I imagine Isaiah shaking. Isaiah is broken in forgiveness and all of a sudden he looks around the room and there's nobody else there <laughs> and it's a you could you could pick me verse 9 he said you're the man go and tell this people but go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. God says, you go tell them. Go tell them about a God who loves and forgives and judges. You're my guy. I don't need the guy that's rich. I don't, it doesn't have to be the guy who's famous. It doesn't need to be the person who's most powerful. I'm looking for the guy who's forgiven. And Isaiah, that's you. But those you tell, by the way, they're not going to hear you. <laughs> They're not going to hear you. They're not going to hear it. They're not going to see it. Why, why is that? Their sin, Isaiah. It's their sin. Because of their sin, they're not going to see clearly. And because of their sin, that they're not going to hear your message. Well, that's quite the motivational talk, right? And so what would you ask? I mean, here's what I think I would ask. It's what he asked, verse 11. How long? Okay, I'll go tell him, but how long are we going to do this and nobody's going to listen? And basically what God tells him, and you can read the rest of the chapter for yourself, God says, I want you to do it until there's nobody else to tell. Do it until there's nobody else who needs to hear. This is almost like the Old Testament version of what we call in the New Testament the Great Commission. I want you to go with this message of my greatness, and I want you to tell everybody until there's nobody left to tell. And just like in the New Testament, there's a promise. They're not all going to hear you and see. But here's what he says in verse 13. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, 
so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. What in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. He says, look, when you go and you tell them how great I am and you tell them how I love them, you tell them that I'll forgive them, you know what? They're not, they're not gonna see and they're not gonna hear, but a small section will. That's what he's saying. A tenth of them will. Uh, it's like a, a stump will be there, a seed will be there. There's always going to be some, Isaiah, always. They're gonna see, they're gonna hear, they're gonna turn, and they're gonna be forgiven. I just wanna encourage you with that word in the middle of a culture of uncertainty, in the middle of something that many of us would say, I've never seen this in my lifetime. The question we always wanna ask is, do you think that in the middle of this tragedy, right, that this word of hope that we, the church, bring, is this gonna wake everybody up to the truth of who God is? And the answer that God gave Isaiah, I think, would be similar answer to what he would give us. Some. Some. Some are gonna see, and they're gonna hear, and they're gonna turn, and they're gonna be forgiven. What kind of people is God looking for to carry that message? You say, I just don't know if, I'm, if I know enough to do that. It's not the smartest that he's looking for. You say, I, I, I just think there are a lot of people who have more talent than me. It's not the most talented that is required. You say, I just don't know if I have the resources that are necessary. It's not the most resourced. It's not even those who are most well-known. It's those who have a vision of God's greatness and are broken over their own sinfulness and are forgiven. See, some of y'all are trying to convince some people around you that Jesus is more. You're trying to convince some people around you that your God is able to do immeasurably more than all that you ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within you. But you your heart has set up idols and the God who is more is camouflaged Who's God looking for? He's looking for people who have a vision of his greatness. People who are broken over their own sinfulness. People who have been forgiven and people who will not allow any sin. We will fight against any sin that wants to set up idol in our heart that affects our ability to see or hear or love the God who has given us He is beautiful. God, a most amazing text written a long time ago at a particular time in a nation's history where they were afraid of what the future holds. And God, I thank you that 
you intended for what you showed Isaiah on that day to span far beyond that day. God, you intended for us to see it on a day like today in a nation like like, like we are in a situation that we find ourselves. God, today we are reminded that you, the king, are still on the throne, that you, the king, are still good. That anchors our soul. But God, I'm asking you to give us in turn a ferociousness to fight, to fight the tendency or desire to set up anything in the place where you were made to reign. God, may your people see clearly who you are. And may seeing your holiness break our hearts. God, that we might stay clean in telling the world that you are more. Thank you for what you showed us today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.